Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Friends in Fiction is sponsored by Mama Geraldine's Bodacious Foods. Kathy Cunningham was a successful but unfulfilled radio executive in Atlanta. One night, while sipping wine and snacking on expensive cheese straws, she realized her Mama Geraldine's own cheese straw recipe was far superior. The idea for Kathy's company was born. Mama Geraldine's cheese straws now come in six varieties, and they are the best-selling cheese straw in the United States. Plus, the cookies are melt-in-your-mouth delicious. Yummy snacks and a woman-owned empire? Now that is something that we here at Friends in Fiction can get behind. Try them. You'll be so glad that you did. Get 20% off on your online order at mamageraldines.com with the code FAB5. Snack on, y'all. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction podcast. Today, we're talking about writing novels that include literary characters, a modern take on literary classics. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. And I'm Kristen Harmel. Today, we're privileged to have with us both Michael Ferris Smith, the author of Nick, and Rachel Hawkins, the author of The Wife Upstairs. The former is a novel about Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby. The latter is a modern retelling of the classic Jane Eyre. Both were two of the most anticipated books of early 2021. Let's start today with Michael and his amazing book. Michael Ferris Smith is an award-winning writer whose novels have appeared on best of the year lists with Esquire, Southern Living, Book Riot, and numerous others. He's been named an Indie Next list, Barnes and Noble Discover, and Amazon Best of the Month selections. He's been a finalist for the Southern Book Prize, the Gold Dagger Award in the UK, and the Grand Prix in France. <laughs> I can't say that. The Grand Prix Love. We're going to skip that one in the UK. And his essays have appeared with the New York Times, Bitter Southerner, Gardening Gun, and more. He lives in Oxford, Mississippi with his wife and daughters. His newest novel, Nick, which came out on January 5th, is a prequel to The Great Gatsby. Michael Ferris Smith pulls Nick Carraway out of the shadows and into his own spotlight in this fascinating look into Nick's life before West Egg. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you guys. Thanks for asking me to be on. Oh, we're thrilled. So let's dive right in. Why Nick? Can we just start there? What was it about Nick that drew you to him? What was it in Nick that made you want to know more? 
it was something that if you would have told me five minutes before it hit me that that's what I was going to do, I would have never believed you ever. I mean, I think it's just an example of you being so grabbed by something that it won't let go of you and you have no choice but to do it no matter how crazy it seems. And uh, I think I had to deal with that a little bit too. It came after my third reading of Gatsby, probably about five years ago. I had read it previously when I was around 20. Could not have cared less about it. Didn't get it, understand it, tossed it aside. I read it again after about seven or eight years later, after I had actually lived abroad for a few years and was reading a lot of The Lost Generation because I was um, living in Paris and France and moving around Europe quite a bit. And I started to get it then. I started to see things in it then that I really wasn't expecting, or I guess that's just what time does to us. And then I really, I put it aside and then 14 years, 15 years later, I picked it up again and read it. And it seemed to just speak to me on every page as I was going along. And when I got to the end of Nick and he realizes it's his birthday and he's forgotten, he's about to turn 30. It just really struck me how detached he was and how disillusioned he was. And it hit me like there's something like really intense going on with Nick that I've never like realized in this book before. And then he goes on to describe the upcoming decade of his 30s as a decade of loneliness and just how isolated and alone he felt. And, you know, it never was the glitz and glamour of Gatsby that interested me. It was those feelings of loneliness and isolation and detachment that, um, and depression, I think. I mean, a lot of those things that I know that I've, I've experienced in my life and I think a lot of people have experienced. And I just kept thinking about it to the point to where the very simple thought did cross my mind, it would be really interesting if someone were to write his story because he tells us so little about him. And just almost before I could finish the thought, I realized I was going to do it and I was just going to deal with it however I was going to deal with it. But that's how that's how we came to Nick, I suppose. It's so fascinating. I always say that if we follow our curiosity, that's where we find our stories. And if yeah. you would just let that thought float by, we wouldn't have this extraordinary story. So, Well, I mean, you're exactly right. Following your curiosities and being willing to take chances, too, I think, is a, another great lesson I learned through this. I mean, there was two ways. I mean, I, I realized all the stuff that would come with it if I did it, like in the immediacy, like right away. Like almost that was my next thought almost after having the idea and thinking, do I really want to? Am I going to do this? But it was follow this thing, go after this thing that I was so kind of like, kind of like strangely emotionally drawn to with all the talent and grit and guts that I could take to it and do it or shrink back from it, be intimidated by it and always wonder what would have happened. And for me, that was an easy decision. And I think we are very glad that you decided to do it too. It's, it's such an amazing book and an amazing, um, Amazing way to look at it and a great reason to look at it that way. And I think something in particular that really resonates now in 2020 slash 2021. I think a lot of the emotions you just described are things that resonate in all of us. So you wrote about Nick, a life divided, a mind divided. To me, this was such a beautiful line that I had to stop and read it again. How did you, from reading The Great Gatsby, get to this inner working and insight into Nick's life? Was it completely imagined or did you see some of that in Nick originally? I think probably a little bit of both. You know, I think those breadcrumbs that he kind of gives us throughout Gatsby and also the way I was interpreting his character and the thoughts he was having, 
those were kind of, I guess, the beginning pieces for me. But the thing that struck me about it, and which seemed like a logical jumping off point for me, was the war and his experience in the war. Because, you know, there's a line from Hemingway's Movable Feast in which he says, we didn't trust anyone who wasn't in the war, which speaks volumes to the mood and feel of that of that group of people who went through that. One of the first connections Nick and Gatsby make is they ask each other, were you in the war? Yeah, and they tell each other uh, where they were. So immediately, like, that was the thing that struck me. Of course he was in the war. And of course he would be suffering from the things that people suffer with who survive a war and come back home. And then when I began to read about World War One and what trench warfare was actually like, I mean, we, we know about it from history books and we see it depicted in the movies. But man, when I started to read about what really went on, I was just, it was horrific and amazing. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start there, put him in World War One, and let's see. And to me, that when I when I had the notion to start there with him, like it, it almost like it it opened up for me from that moment on, like to really create a young man who's not only going to be traumatically affected by the war, but also his opinions on things are going to change. Also, if if he's able to survive it, which we know he does. So while I had kind of these these bits and pieces of who he was, like I think there was also quite a a blank canvas there to kind of create how he co- how he comes to make the type of interpretations that we see him making in Gatsby. What an incredible way to build a character, though, kind of from the back front as opposed to the the other way. I, I starting at the end and building him out from the beginning. What an interesting thing that must have been to do as a writer. Very much so. You know, my my kind of quick thought in my immediacy of it was. Um, and the very first kind of words I wrote of Nick in the days after I had the idea, I had just put him on a train and had him coming back home. And I, originally I thought he's coming back home after Gatsby. And I thought, well, no, I don't want to tell us what happens after Gatsby. He's already told us what happens after Gatsby. Yeah. I mean, it's Gatsby, right? And so I changed that like just in a couple of hours. That kind of struck me and I changed it to, no, he's on a train going back home, coming home from the war. And that really just like I said, just kind of opened things up immensely for me because I didn't have to react to the man who reacted to Gatsby. Now I just had to create the man who walks up and shakes hands with Gatsby. You know, sometimes we don't, as authors, see what we're really doing at first. Um, What you just said about the breadcrumbs, uh, if we follow the breadcrumbs of our curiosity, sometimes we don't see things until hindsight So it might sound crazy to say that a story about 1920 helps us in 2020, but it does. The trauma, the overwhelming feelings, the the blues or the depression, the hopelessness, the crumbling of ideals and ideas in our lives and what we held close that disappears without our control. And we know that we hold our trauma if we don't face it. You know, one of my favorite books on that is the book about um, the body holds the secrets or the body tells the stories. And these are very modern day problems, but it, but blown up because it's a war. Did you see that tie when you were writing it? Did you see how much it would affect today and help and in many ways help us today to read about how we dealt with it? Well, that's a good question. Good observation. One of the interesting things about this novel was I wrote it five years ago and turned it in and everybody was like, you did what? And I said, yeah. 
and because I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. So I, I was not interested in the copyright issue at all. Never looked it up, never thought about it. And then when I turned it in, they were like, we, this is awesome, but we got to sit on it for five years. Um, whoops. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> so we locked it down and zipped our mouths and sat on it, you know, for five years. So to get back to the question, when I went to revise it last year, me and my editor, and I started reading it again, I, he and I both, I could not believe how timely it felt. The themes of country and transition, the depression, the loneliness, the PTSD that we know so much about, the crumbling of ideals, the lack of faith in institutions, just the distrust, the doubt. I mean, I, I was really mesmer, quite mesmerized by it, how... Uh, a country coming off a pandemic or in a pandemic also. That was also a parallel that was there, which I didn't put in the original draft, but then went back and put in in the revision. It was really, I mean, I think it's, it tells me that we haven't changed that much, you know, um, which is kind of horrifying. All the lessons we've learned in this country or should have learned in this country over the past 100 years. And, um, you know, I've had five years to sit around and think about this novel. And it's kind of occurred to me, Probably over the last six or eight months, my experience with it, even it being 100 years old and watching me taking Nick through those streets of 1919, 1920 and the way he felt and how it felt so like in tune with a lot of things we've been feeling in this country. I don't know. We're in a pattern of that. You know, it's hard to get out of it. And for whatever reason, we keep making these loops and it seems to me that perhaps that's the why Gatsby remains so prevalent is maybe more people than I think see it like I do. Maybe it's not the glitz and glamour that people get out of it. Maybe it is these feelings that they attach with Nick and the other characters in it because everybody in there is on the ed edge of crumbling at any moment. The lifestyle, the relationships, everything in that novel is just on the edge of failure, which it does. It all eventually crumbles. And maybe that's the thing that makes Gatsby so timeless and makes people continue to read it and be attracted to it. Not the mansions and the, the moonshine and the, the prohibition and all the glitz and glamour part. Maybe it's the, those feelings and emotions of it that people connect with. Like similarly to I did that in the way that I did, that keeps it transferring from one generation to the next. I think that whenever a story hits us in the solar plexus of, of recognition of ourself, it's a lot more powerful than just the plot or the mansions or the glitz. And that story didn't hit you in the right place until you noticed that. So I think you're right. And, you know, Michael, it's interesting to hear you talk about coming back to the manuscript for Nick five years later and seeing it and experiencing it in a different way, even though you were the one to write it, because it sounds like that's what happened to you with The Great Gatsby also. And it's something I've noticed too. And, and I think, Patty, you and I have talked about this, this idea that, there's wherever you are in your life is such an influence on how you read the books. And sometimes you have to be at the right spot to get the right things out of the books. It's just interesting to hear your experience, even with your own work with that. So Michael, I wanted to ask you about the love story in this book. So my goodness, the love story with Nick and Ella, Patty and I talked about this too. And we think it echoes in small ways, the story of Daisy and Jay Gatsby. Was this something you did on purpose? I don't know. On purpose, that's always a very tricky thing. <laughs> thing that occurred to me about Nick and his willingness to go down the road so quickly with this thing between Daisy and Gatsby was there had to have been something that would make him believe this was even possible, you know? 
So I wanted to give him something that made him believe it was possible. And for me, Ella was this, you know, and they're two desperate people who find themselves in a desperate time and a desperate place in Paris. And it's not going to end well. I mean, I think we know that. For him to be able to open his heart and mind up to what Gatsby is after and what Daisy and what they're kind of dreaming of in this very idealistic way that we also know it's not going to happen. I felt like something led him to be able to take that bait so quickly. And I think his relationship with Ella was that thing for me that made it possible that he would fall in line with with, uh, what they want him to do and what they're asking him to be a part of. So you really did take all those breadcrumbs laid out for you and Gatsby and assemble them into this beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I tried very hard (laughs) to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that struck me about Nick all the way through Gatsby, he's scarred. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He has been through some shit, man, emotionally, psychologically, romantically. I mean, however you want, physically. I mean, he's been through a lot. And um, I think, I think too, I wanted to give him his own life. You know, all we see in Gatsby is his projection of this thing. I wanted him to have his own life because every one of us has, we have our own lives. And no matter how quiet we are, we have our own complexities and issues and heartbreaks and joys and triumphs. And I just wanted him to have his own life. Well, Michael, this is an extraordinary reimagining. Thank you not only for this novel, but for talking to us. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now we welcome Rachel Hawkins, the New York Times bestselling author of 11 novels for young adults, including the hugely popular Hex Hall series. She studied gender and sexuality in Victorian literature at Auburn University, where I also studied undergrad. And she currently lives in Alabama, which also happens to be the setting of her new novel. The Wife Upstairs, which just like Michael's book, came out on January 5th, is actually Rachel's adult debut. Named an Indie Next pick and a number one Library Reads pick for January, it's a twist on the classic Jane Eyre. Entertainment Weekly calls it compulsively readable, a gothic thriller laced with arsenic. And might we just add that it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list in the number four spot? How amazing is that? So welcome, Rachel. Can you begin today by telling us a bit about the book and what made you take on Jane Eyre? So The Wife Upstairs is such a weird project in so many ways. Um, The ways that it came to me were sort of unusual, where basically... um, it came to my agent first, the idea somebody had contacted her and was like, do you have any clients who might want to take a run at like a modern Jane Eyre? And I had never done adult and I had never done thrillers, but I have a very, very good agent who, as soon as she saw the pitch, was like, well, this sounds absolutely bananas. Who do I know who can do bananas? Oh, it's Rachel. <laughs> so she passed it on to me and I immediately was like, yeah, let me take a swing at this. And so that's the first time that kind of thing has ever happened to me. Uh, usually my books are very much, they, you know, sort of start with me and end with a whole bunch of people working on it. But this kind of was collaborative right from the get go. And as soon as I just saw it, it was a very sort of bare bones pitch. But I thought, you know, taking Jane Eyre, this kind of gothic classic, and turning it into a domestic noir thriller, I just thought like, oh, there's there's so many fun things that you can mine in that original story to turn it into this kind of book. 
So that's sort of how it started was like a hint of an idea from someone else and then kind of running with it in my own way. Was, was this something that was kind of on the track you imagined you'd be on anyhow? Like, had you been thinking about writing adult fiction at some point? No, I really hadn't at the time. And it's one of those things that's, you know, so much of this business ends up being like just sort of fortuitous and luck and right place, right time type stuff. So it was sort of like this hit my inbox just around the same time I kind of started running out of ideas for YA. I, uh, I've, I've had a great 10 year career in children's lit and really loved it. But I was beginning to realize that I wasn't reading it anymore. And I was reading almost exclusively adult fiction, a lot of thrillers. And so it it was, it was almost like my brain had caught up, like my reader brain knew where my heart was before my writer brain had quite gotten there yet. So yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, when I was first starting to write when I was younger, I I thought I was going to be a romance novelist, which now I am doing under another name. So like, I hit that. But uh, yeah, it's been such an interesting thing of kind of figuring out like, oh, okay, this is what I wanted to be doing. Because as soon as I sat down to write this one, it was like one of the fastest books I think I've ever written. Like the process was really smooth. And I think it's just because it was time. (laughs) You know, my brain was really excited for the break. I think sometimes our writer selves know more than our real life selves. Yeah. Don't you? Like exactly. they're hidden in the back saying, okay, bring it on, bring it on. And then all we have to do is say yes. yes. Um, first half of this podcast, we were talking to Michael Ferris Smith about Nick and writing about Nick Carraway and how when the idea came to him, he, he said if he had asked five minutes before, and somebody told him he had done it, he would have said, you're out of your mind. And then five minutes <laughs> yeah. later, he was doing it. So I feel like yeah, exactly for you, you wouldn't have thought about it until you did. Right, exactly. It's like Stephen King has that thing where he says like the boys in the basement and you know, that's what's happening. <laughs> yep. Yep. I always say the cook's on the back burner. So <laughs> right. I have to ask why Alabama? And why specifically Mountain Brook? Because believe it or not, that's where I live. That's where I am sitting at my desk in Mountain Brook, Alabama, right this minute. And I gasped out loud when I saw that literally on the third line of the book. Yeah, um, it's funny because when the idea first like sort of came through, like I said to my agent, it was very bare bones and it was very kind of generic. There was no setting. And when I kind of started working on the idea, Originally, it was just like generic Connecticut. <laughs> you know, I've never even been to Connecticut, but I was like, surely this is where this kind of book happens, right? Like, <laughs> so it's all like suburbs on the East Coast. And then I was talking to somebody who was, you know, helping me out with the book, who was part of the um, company that had first approached me. And we started talking about setting. And then he said, Well, where are you from? And I said, You know, Alabama. And he said, Well, do you want to set it there? And it was just like, I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me that I could do that, but it was like fireworks going off in my brain. Like, yes, I want to set it in Alabama because I could do so much with that. And then as for why Mountain Brook specifically, I had a friend who years ago moved from out West, actually from Las Vegas to Birmingham so that her husband could do a medical school thing. And she was telling me how being from Vegas 
she thought like she was going to move to Alabama and that everybody was going to be very um, sort of like salt of the earth, you know, <laughs> just like good country folks. And she's like, and then I showed up and like everybody was like driving beamers and they were playing tennis and pearls. <laughs> I was like, oh, you guys have all that too. <laughs> I was like, of course we do. Like every you know, subset <laughs> of the U.S. has their rich people or their kind of that subculture. And I had, you know, I have friends in Mountain Brook as well. And, and I've always really liked that part of Birmingham. And I thought that there was something kind of fun uh, to be explored there in like that subset of Mountain Brook, which I'm sure <laughs> you're familiar with. <laughs> I'm sure well, I have never played part. tennis in Pearls. No. I, <laughs> I actually don't play tennis, but I actually, I actually moved here about eight years ago. So I too am a, a transplant and I... <laughs> Love reading about it from from that other point of view. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it is. It's a neat little place. You know, like I remember when I was I was still looking up, so even though I'd been there, I still like, you know, was Googling Mountain Brook and like making sure I was familiar with some of the things. And it was like there was an article about it that was like Alabama's tiny kingdom. You know? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it, is, oh, it is Alabama's tiny kingdom. <laughs> That's what they call it. Yeah. Is- so what a funny coincidence, though, that you write a book set exactly in <laughs> Patty's really... town. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so funny. Clearly, the two of you are destined to be friends. That's all I, I can take away from this. And War Eagle, too. And War Eagle, that's right. <laughs> Rachel, can you talk a bit about what it's like as a writer to take familiar characters or a familiar tale like you did and put your own spin on them? It, I'm wondering, just kind of from the writer perspective, if that was more or less difficult than writing something completely from scratch, but it sounds like this came to you really quickly. It did. And and it was, you know, it's, there were parts of it that were certainly more difficult. And then there were parts of it that it, it was easier. Sometimes if you did get stuck, you, I would go back to my copy of Jane Eyre and be like, what can I sort of mine from this? Um, it certainly gives you plot structure, even though I ended up getting rid of a lot of the original Jane Eyre stuff. But that was kind of the fun of it, too, was that very early on in the process, I had decided that even though Jane Eyre is this, like, obviously iconic book, I couldn't let myself be intimidated by that. And I, if I was going to do this, I needed to do it fearlessly. And that meant that if something wasn't working for me, like as a sort of connection to the canon, then get rid of it, go your own way, you know, because at the end of the day, the book has to be its own thing. And it's been interesting to hear from people sort of, I get like mixed reactions of like some people who are like, oh, Jane Eyre is my favorite book. And I really enjoyed this. And then I get people who are like, I actually never read Jane Eyre, but I I still really liked this. And I was like, oh yeah, no, no, you don't. There's no required reading (laughs) before you settle into this one. Cause it's, it's got to stand on its own, you know, and, and you've got to be able to come to it and know nothing about Jane Eyre and still have a really satisfying read. Otherwise, like, what's the point of doing a retelling in a lot of ways? You know, it's like if if people feel like they have to be familiar with the original, you know, that's that's not cool. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you talking about giving yourself this permission, though, to, to to sort of deviate from that. And it sounds like a conscious decision you made. And, and it makes me think of, you know, I, I think you and I are about the same age. And I find myself at this point in my writing career growing as a person as the result of my writing more than I have in the past, maybe just because I'm a little bit more introspective about it, or I've been doing it long enough to get to that point. Did you kind of feel like that too, making these decisions and, and deciding I need to kind of blaze my own path here? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it too was like having come from YA and having done that for 10 years till it was like varying degrees of success. <laughs> and so I was like being very brave in the manuscript itself, which then made me definitely be more brave, I think, in my real life and certainly in my career. And that, you know, when I started working on this book, things were not going so hot in my YA career. And so it felt very freeing in this book. Like, even as I was like, don't second guess that line, just write it and and go forward. I had a similar thing of like, don't second guess walking away from something that's not really working for you anymore and walking towards something that that is really making you feel happy and fulfilled as a writer in a way that you kind of haven't been in a while. So yeah, that it was definitely, they definitely informed each other for sure. The book and my life. <laughs> so it was fascinating. I was listening to a talk yesterday by one of my favorite poets. His name is David White. And I actually wrote this line down on a piece of scrap paper on my desk. And it said, whoever you are in your work is who you are becoming. I love that. Don't I you love that? that? And I'm listening so to you good. talk about this. And I got chills head to toe because I literally yeah. just wrote it down on this piece of paper. It's so funny. And yeah, it's so true. It's so, so true. true. And I've never heard it put like that before, but that's it completely. That that if, if we're going to be step forth in bravery in our work, in many ways, we're, we're stepping forth in our life. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's amazing. I'm, I got chills when I heard you say that. <laughs> yeah, so, that is really cool. I'm going to write that down as well now. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll email it to you. Yes, and then, we'll, then, then we'll meet at the Auburn oil cellars and, and, and <laughs> yeah, have a cup of tea. And, I'm, um, I'm inviting myself along. I'm coming. Please, yes, come, please, please come down here. <laughs> so why is 2021 the year that Jane Eyre is retold? I think this is really fascinating because some of the literature that's coming out right now, we didn't have any idea how much we needed it in what we're living through now. So right. can you talk about how a plot originally imagined in what, 1840 can mm -hmm. still have such relevance in our life today? It is. It's so interesting because like when I was writing it too, I've been working on this book for so long now. I actually started it in January, 2017. And oh, wow. I know, I know. And it was very interesting because <laughs> I realized I was getting out a lot of anger in the book, like the women in my book, because especially like this was, you know, we all know what was going on in 2017. And like the Me Too movement was really taking off then as well. And it, and it felt very like cathartic to have these like angry and complicated women. And I think if you go back and read Jane Eyre, you know, Jane is such an iconic character because she does let herself be angry and she, but she knows her worth in a world that's telling her she doesn't have any because she's poor and plain and, you know, and, but she always believes in her own self-worth to the point of, you know, walking away when something isn't working for her anymore. Um, and, and I think that that still resonates. I think that that's why that character has been so important to so many people over the years. And I also think, especially this year, people maybe like, you know, can really relate with somebody who feels very, who feels literally locked in their house. Um, <laughs> so I think that might be part of it too. So yeah, I do. I just think that there's, there's still so much like, when I reread the book before I started writing this, I was really struck by how modern a lot of the themes are, that it is a book about money and class and power and sex. And those are all things we're always going to be interested, I think, in reading about and talking about. And and the the idea of women having their own agency 
making their own yes. choices. Exactly. And although that might sound radical, even today, the idea that women have this agency to, to do what is best for them. And like you said, walk away from what isn't working instead of exactly. struggling so hard to make it work. Yeah. Exactly. So Rachel, there's a lot of authors, Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre. For example, Jane is sent to a boarding school that's similar to Bronte's boarding school. There are characters based on people in her life. They both became a governess, things like that. So I have to ask you, how much Rachel Hawkins do we find in the wife upstairs? <laughs> it, it feels like very dangerous to be like lots when everybody is <laughs> off exactly. doing all kinds of horrible crime. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically Rachel. I'm just trying to evaluate whether to actually come to coffee with you two or if I should just hear clear. This is my Very test. <laughs> this is a litmus test. <laughs> Yeah, it's very funny. This one does. I mean, there are certainly, it certainly has, I think, sort of almost more of my like personal observations on like people. Um, there's a character in the book, Trip Ingram, who is just like an amalgamation of like every sort of vaguely gross rich guy I've ever known. And I went to like private school in small town Alabama. So I know a lot of those guys. Um, <laughs> so uh, so there's a lot more of that. And then there's like, in some cases, there's actual conversations like uh, a friend of mine did this whole thing about reading about how like male CEOs don't know how much milk is in their fridge ever, but female CEOs have to run a business and still know that. And I completely took that right out of her mouth and put it in somebody else's <laughs> mouth in the book. Um, because I thought like, what a stunning observation, you know? And um, so yeah, there's a lot more, I think I, I definitely mind those sort of observations and, and character stuff more than like, luckily more than the plot stuff. <laughs> so yeah. So All it's right. safe. It's safe. It's, okay. I'm not gonna lock I'll, in my I'll come to coffee. I was really concerned. Okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, fair. It's completely fair. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us. And thank you to Michael Ferris Smith too. Do not forget to pick up the wife upstairs and Nick. We highly recommend them both. And thank you to everyone for joining us today. Keep your ears out for more fascinating friends and fiction interviews coming up. And don't forget to tune in on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern for our Facebook live show. In the meantime, stay safe and well and keep reading. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Good night. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.